The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended, and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad, some people will call you heroes, uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from, literally, from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This recording is the last of the recordings from the recent Wings Over New Zealand forum meet at the Air Force Museum of New Zealand. I'm pleased that the day went very well and also that these recordings that I've been releasing through the Wings Over New Zealand show have also been proving very popular. This last one is extra special. We had two superb guests, Dave Fedors and Paul Newton. I want to thank Nick Veronico from NASA for helping me to set this up to have these two fantastic guests. Just a reminder that this particular episode also has a video version. You'll find the video on the show page. Okay, on with the show. We've had a... a an amazing array of speakers today and we're going to have a, a grand finale with uh, some pilots from NASA so if uh, if we can ask them to come forward please good afternoon hello very nice to meet you are you Dave I'm Dave yes yeah I'm Dave as well hi good afternoon I'm uh, Dave Fedors from uh, California um, with the NASA SOFIA program and this is uh, Paul Newton also from uh, the NASA SOFIA program we're going to talk to you about Sophia. Um, we just got, uh, Paul and I just got done two weeks here in uh, Christchurch um, flying, and uh, we're headed back to California tomorrow. The airplane will be here until uh, 20 July. There's another group um, rotating in to support it. 
So, so uh, SOFIA is an acronym. NASA loves acronyms. It stands for uh, Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. And um, that's pretty much what it is. It flies in the stratosphere, and it's an infrared uh, observatory. Um, what we'd like to cover uh, this afternoon is why, we, why to do airborne astronomy, um, a little history of it, um, development of SOFIA, um, how we operate the aircraft for astronomy, which is a little differently than how you would operate um, an airliner, and then why we come to New Zealand. Uh, why we do airborne astronomy is uh, light is only a small portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. And as you look into the sky, you see different things based on uh, what, what wavelengths you're looking at. This is a diagram looking at the, the Milky Way. And uh, in the uh, right here is the optical. This is what you would see with your eye. And then Sophia does the near-infrared, mid-infrared, and infrared, um, the, the three bands above, above the optical. There's a lot of, a lot of things you can't see um, in the optical that Sophia is able to uh, observe. So this is uh, on the uh, left is uh, the Orion um, constellation. Um, in the optical, this is what you'd see looking through a telescope. And then on the uh, right is what it looks like under infrared. You can see uh, it looks quite a bit different. There's a bright area here. It's not even visible in, in the optical. So these are some of the, uh, the things that make infrared astronomy uh, unique. Um, a lot of infrared energy will pass through clouds and dust that, that uh, scatters uh, visible light. So you can see things um, in the infrared that are just not visible or are obscured um, in the optical. You can de detect cool objects. Every object in the universe radiates, and the cool, um, the kind of the peak radiation depends on the temperature. The hotter, hotter the object, the uh, the higher the wavelength. And as things cool down, most of the energy they radiate is in the infrared. So you can see cool stars, um, uh, dust clouds, nebula, other stuff that's not visible in the optic optic spectrum. Um, we do a lot of, or uh, Sophia does a lot of chemistry. Uh, spectroscopy is a study of basically what uh, matter radiates um, when it's when it's excited, and you get very distinct and identifiable. Each chemical has a um, unique spectrum, and a lot of the, the chemistry is not um, doesn't have uh, lines in the op optic range. It'll be in the infrared, so you can identify chemicals like water using their infrared signature. And exploring the early universe, because um, a lot of the earliest stuff's redshifted away. So even if it was radiating in the optic, it's redshifted into the infrared. Um, why do we? So that was hopefully give you an idea why why we want to look at the infrared spectrum. Um, why why airborne? Um, well, you have to. Uh, the atmosphere is um, eighty percent. Um, nitrogen, about 20% oxygen, there's trace gases. And one of the most important ones for infrared astronomy is water vapor. It is the number one greenhouse gas. When I say water vapor, it's water that's in the gaseous state. It absorbs uh, infrared radiation uh, pretty, pretty strongly. So th this is a graph of uh, water vapor concentration on the horizontal axis and altitude. 
on the uh, vertical axis. And you can see as you, as you get down low in the atmosphere where we live, there's a lot of water vapor. And that just completely obscures or absorbs infrared um, energy. So we need to get above that to really have any hope of seeing um, infrared, um, making infrared observations. Here's a kind of a graph. Mauna Kea is uh, the, the, one of the premier observing sites. Um, it's a 14,000 foot uh, stratovolcano in Hawaii. And uh, if you put an infrared telescope up there, you can see the blue is kind of what's obscured. It's basically wavelength versus how much gets transmitted. And then, Sophia, we can fly at 45,000 feet. There's still some water vapor above us, but most of it is below us. And you can kind of see that what we can see. Ideally, you'd want to be in space, but that's um, fairly expensive. So infrared um, transmission is pretty good in the stratosphere. There are some advantages. So there are infrared um, observatories in, in space. Um, the James Webb, which is be launched in 2021, is uh, one of NASA's marquee uh, projects. Can replace the Hubble. It's an infrared um, telescope. It will complement, or Sophia will complement it, because um, there's some things that Sophia can do wavelengths um, that James Webb won't be able to see. Um, but there are even beside that. There's advantages of putting it in an aircraft. At 41,000 feet, it's basically equivalent to space. You can have large, heavy instruments that would be um, too expensive to loft uh, on a satellite. You can commission new instruments. We have um, a process where about every, um, we basically uh, put out calls and get new instruments uh, with the latest technology and then uh, retire the older ones. And so that's a, that's a process that allows you to update the uh, observatory. Um, we have more power. The 747, it's hosted at a 747. We've got a, four 81 kilowatt generators. There's plenty of electrical power to go around. Um, when you do IR astronomy, um, everything um, generates pretty much uh, noise in the IR spectrum. So you have to cool uh, sensors down, and that means um, you're cooling them with liquid uh, helium or, um, or cryogens, and those things uh, need to be replenished. So typical space-based satellite has a finite life because the cryogens will get depleted and then it's no longer able to observe um, in the IR. Another uh, advantage of SOFIA is its mobile platform. So if, if there were to be something that maybe wasn't available, so pretty much when you sight a ground-based telescope, you can only see that part of the sky that's overhead where we can, we can travel. <coughs> so a little history of airborne astronomy. Uh, NASA, as far as I know, NASA was kind of the pioneer in this. The first um, uh, kind of proof of concept was they, they put a, a third of a meter telescope, kind of like a hobbyist telescope, in a, uh, a Learjet flew it around. It looked really promising. Um, nobody had done that before. And so they decided that they would make a, uh, a more permanent and larger um, platform. They got a, a, a C-141, which is a, uh, was a military transport that uh, was basically what, did what the C-17 does now. And they put a meter, uh, meter aperture telescope in the front end of that and flew that thing around for uh, almost 20 years. It was very productive, over a thousand scientific papers and uh, made some pretty good discoveries. Um, it discovered the ring system around Uranus. It was uh, um, 
provided early evidence that there's a black hole in the center of our galaxy, um, discovered water in Jupiter's atmosphere and in comets, and discovered Pluto's atmosphere. But in astronomy, aperture, the size of the telescope matters. And so it was, um, Kuiper was successful enough that in the early 80s, they started looking at, um, yeah, this, we need to get a bigger, bigger telescope <coughs> in the air. And so they started doing studies. And at the time, uh, the 747 was the only um, airplane really considered as uh, the biggest airplane at the time. Um, and so they looked at it and said, well, we can continue to operate the Kuiper, or we can shut it down and use some money to build up Sophia. And so they made, made the decision in 1995 that uh, they would go um, with, with Sophia. Originally, uh, the design called for the telescope in the front of the airplane, um, like you see in this picture. It's going to be a three-meter aperture. Um, but they uh, ended up, so Sophia's a combined program with the US and the Germans. The Germans in 1989, um, the Berlin Wall fell. They kind of pulled out of the program. NASA looked at ways of saving money, and they decided to move the telescope to the back and, and make it a little bit smaller. So it ended up being a two and a half meter aperture telescope, and the Germans came back and are still partners. So let me talk a little bit about this uh, 747 SP, which is a little bit of an oddball air, airplane. This is a graph of uh, aircraft range in nautical miles along the horizontal axis, basically nominal passenger capacity. So in the early, early 70s, Boeing was still selling the 707-300. It had a little, little less than 200 passenger uh, capability. And then they sold the 747, um, which had about a 400 passenger capacity, as well as a longer range. In the middle there was Douglas's DC-10 and Lockheed's L-1011. Those things, even though uh, they kind of fought each other, um, both those airplanes were very successful, and uh, a lot of airlines initially bought the um, 747, realized that it was very expensive to operate, it needed kind of a, a, a developed market, and so they would downsize to the DC-10 or L-1011. Boeing didn't have anything to compete between these two airplanes, and so they looked and uh, they, they looked around, they, they really wanted to develop, a, they had, came up with some weird ideas like a three-engine 747, um, they really didn't have the resources at the time to, to develop an airplane from scratch. So they decided to take the 747-100 and shrink it. And they, they said, well, we'll keep the same wing, we'll keep the same engines, we'll keep most of the same systems, we'll make it smaller, it should be less expensive to operate, um, and hopefully it'll compete with the, uh, the L-1011 and DC-10. So you can see it's, they basically took a section out of the front of the airplane, a section out of the back. Because they shrank the uh, tail length, they had to increase the size of the vertical stab. And uh, they also split the rudder. So the, most 747s have two rudders up and down, but they're each one single piece. Sophia has a, um, a, split, a split rudder because um, you don't get as much moment from uh, uh, the rudder because it's not as far back. The wing platform's the same. Um, they did simplify the, the 747. The um, original one had a pretty complicated flap system that was derived, triple file or flaps derived from the 727. They simplified it on the SP to save weight. It's just a uh, single flap. They lightened the gear. Um, 
and they had to make the uh, stabilizer bigger because, again, it, um, shorter tail, tail length. So they ended up with an airplane, um, same fuel capacity, same engine, same wing as the original 747, about 200 and high 200s for passengers, but had an extremely long range because it was lighter. Um, and so they started marking them. I, I don't think it was as successful as they hoped. They only built 45 of them. Um, and Pan Am was kind of a launch customer. They used it New York to Tokyo, um, long distance routes. Qantas uh, owned some of them. They, uh, ours was 18 of the 45 built. It first flew in uh, April of 77. It was delivered to Pan Am, became Clipper Limber. Um, and it soldiered on with Pan Am until um, Pan Am started uh, running into financial troubles. They sold their Pacific operation to United in 1995. So United inherit, had inherited the airplane and operated it uh, for about 10 years until 1994 and then parked it. United sold the airplane to NASA in, in 1977 or, uh, 97, and then uh, flew it to Waco, Texas to a company called L3. They're, defense contractor, and they did all the uh, uh, conversions, putting the uh, hole in the back and, and putting uh, the telescope in. It was a fairly large engineering project, as you can imagine. Um, it first flew in um, April of 2007 with the, uh, the hole um, in the back. It did a couple enough flights there in Waco, Texas, to basically make it safe to ferry, and then uh, we ferried it out to Edwards Air Force Base, where it went through about a three-year flight test program uh, to make to basically clear the uh, envelope of the airplane, get it ready for science. Um, we got uh, first, you know, airplanes have first flights. Telescopes have first light. First light on the uh, Sophia telescope was <coughs> this image of Jupiter in uh, 2010. The first full-on science observing flight was th 2010. And then the, the, uh, the program was considered fully operational in 2014. Um, so it's still fairly new. There's a picture of the, uh, you can get a, a size comparison between the Sophia on the left and the Kuiper Observatory on the right. So this is uh, what it looks like inside. And uh, as part of the modification, uh, they moved the pressure bulkhead, the aft pressure bulkhead forward, so the telescope sits behind the main the main deck in an unpressurized part of the airplane. Um, there's a bunch of environmental conditioning stuff, equipment that's behind, and then the main deck is kind of taken over by uh, scientific workstations and uh, telescope controls. This is what the uh, telescope looks like. It's a uh, a reflector. Um, with a standard parabolic um, primary mirror. It's about uh, physical size is uh, 2.7, but that uh, effective aperture is 2.5. And, um, and I'll show you, show you the optic path in the next slide. It, has, uh, it weighs about 38,000 um, pounds. This is what the uh, optic path, so this is looking sideways uh, at the telescope. The pink is the light coming in from outside the aircraft. It bounces off the primary mirror onto a secondary mirror, which is up there at the top. 
spouts to this uh, tertiary mirror, which is a, a beam splitter. It reflects IR, IR light in one path and visible light in, in a second path. The, the kind of greenish color is the visible light. The red is uh, the infrared light. This gray area is the uh, basically the bulkhead. So the light gets shot through a tube into the pressurized compartment. And then there's a flange where they mount the, the um, instrument. The whole thing is, uh, kind of see this looks like a spherical bearing. The whole thing can rotate in uh, two uh, degrees of freedom. Um, and I'll sh uh, hopefully this next uh, thing will work. You can see that this is how it's isolated. So the airplane needs to point in an inertial space. The airplane's bending, moving um, around. This is how it's isolated. There's a rotational bearing here. And then there's a, a vibration isolation system. Um, and the whole thing is controlled as a closed loop control system. And uh, it is, does, does very well. Um, we can keep the telescope pointed at an object up to pretty strong moderate turbulence. Uh, this is what the cockpit looked like when NASA got the airplane. This is pretty standard 60s vintage uh, airliner. And uh, it had uh, typical nine-waypoint nine spinning gyro type uh, INSs that really weren't adequate for what we needed. So we, uh, about six years ago, upgraded it to kind of a business jet with business jet uh, glass and uh, flight management computers. Put in elect electrical uh, engine instruments. Um, so it's kind of a hybrid of new and old. Um, we have a, NASA bought a, a simulator from, uh, from United. This was actually Boeing's engineering simulator for the 747 back in the 70s. Um, and then United bought it and used it to train their, their pilots. And then uh, NASA bought it from United and we, we still use it. Um, the 747 classics with the flight engineer, there's uh, very few of them still operating. There's only two 747 classic um, sims um, in the world, one in Miami and ours. Um, so without this uh, simulator, we couldn't do the job. We do all, almost all of our training in the simulator. The, uh, because the airplane's so expensive to operate, we really can't do training, training in the aircraft. Um, a typical mission profile, we only carry, the airplane only has 44 seats. Um, the typical mission profile will be uh, 14 to 30, um, take off at sunset. The airplane uh, was designed when fuel was basically free um, and designed to go really fast for really long distance. So um, it does not get very good gas mileage. Um, we'll take off with a fuel load, typically 250,000 uh, pounds and then uh, with a weight of about 640,000 pounds, fly for 10 hours, and then land, land before sunrise with about 30,000 uh, uh, pounds of fuel in reserve. This is a typical flight path. Um, this is one out of uh, the home base in, in California. Each one of those curved segments is an observation. The telescope looks out the left side of the airplane, and it has an elevation range from about 20 to 60 degrees in uh, but azimuth's only got one or two degrees, so we steer the telescope in azimuth by changing the heading of the airplane. So um, these, you can see that each one of those is a different 
object they're looking at. Here's a picture taken off out of Christchurch a couple years ago, um, right at sunset. We get some beautiful uh, sunsets and then fly into the night. We also fly the airplane because we're not trying to maximize fuel economy like you would in an airline. We're trying to maximize science and obviously want to get, try and get as high as possible to get above as much water vapor. So the, this uh, uh, horizontal axis is basically gross weight in pounds. The vertical axis is altitude. Um, the red is what you do if you were trying to go somewhere and, uh, and, and optimize fuel efficiency. The blue is what we do. So we're well above the uh, optimum um, economics of the airplane, altitude-wise. And what that means, this is a picture of our, our primary flight display. This, uh, so we've got altitude over here. We're at uh, 41,000 feet. Airspeed <coughs> here, we fly at 0.85 Mach. And the, the little, we're at 255 indicated. And these two lines indicate the high and low speed buffet capability of the airplane. It's only about 20 knots, kind of up in what's called the coffin, coffin corner um, of the airplane. We don't have auto throttle, so it's uh, a fairly uh, involved piloting task to keep the uh, airspeed within, within those limits, especially when there's any appreciable turbulence. This is um, kind of a, a summary of our last year's flying. So two main places of operation are in Palmdale, California. That's the, in the northern hemisphere. And then we come down here for uh, six to seven weeks in your, in your winter or our summer. And you can see what we uh, did last year. This year will look a lot similar. So why New Zealand? Um, the answer really is because it's dark, cold, and dry here. Dark. <laughs> Um, and it's winter. It's, um, so up at home, um, we're at about 35 degrees north latitude. We get about almost uh, maybe nine hours of uh, darkness um, right now. And so it makes it really hard to plan the missions, especially if you go north, it gets even less darkness. We're here, you guys have almost got 14 and a half hours of uh, night. Um, it's cold. And that's good for infrared astronomy because, like I said, everything radiates in the IR. And so the atmosphere is actually radiating in the IR. The telescope itself is radiating in the IR. You get it cold, there's less, less noise in the system. You guys have a lower tropopause. So it's really easy to get into the stratosphere. You don't really have convective weather like thunderstorms. In North America, we've got the you know, warm Gulf of Mexico air and the cold Arctic air. They get together and fight it out in the middle of our country, generate giant thunderstorms. Um, and it's very dry in the stratosphere here. It's almost space-like for water vapor. Um, this, uh, the colors got swapped on this, but um, this uh, has, there's some targets we just can't observe from uh, the northern hemisphere. The galactic center is pretty much right overhead where you guys um, sit. Um, and the Ma Magellanic clouds, those are an area of constant study because they're basically little galaxies um, orbiting the Milky Way that have they're different age, they have different chemical compositions. So there's been quite a bit of study on those. Um, this is a, a, a thing we've been studying quite a bit on this campaign. On the right is a visible image from the Hubble telescope at the center of our galaxy. Uh, there's a black hole that lives there and there's a lot going on. Um, you could probably talk uh, about 
the exploding stars and the arches? Yeah, we, we this particular trip uh, we've been working on a study, infrared study of the center of the uh, Milky Way, including the, the, the black hole. And uh, in fact, uh, we've just finished up a study, a uh, very high resolution study of the velocities um, of the rotation within the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So um, that's uh, that's something that we've just uh, just finished up on this mission, and uh, you'll be seeing some more of that when it's, uh, when the results of that are published. But it's, it's absolutely stunning uh, resolution that they've uh, so managed to achieve. So the black hole lives like right up there in that dark area. This disk is tilted relative to the Earth. The whole thing is spinning. Um, there's inflow into the um, black hole. There's uh, stars exploding. Um, and uh, there's, it's just a very interesting, um, interesting subject of study. This is really the only galactic center we can observe directly. Um, so we've been um, putting quite a bit of, or the science community is fairly interested in this. Um, and so uh, at, this is the most uh, high resolution published photo of that, they call it the circumnuclear disk in the center of our galaxy so far. And uh, that concludes the briefing, so I'd be happy to take any questions. Did you want me to talk about uh, ME69? Sure, I um, don't have the slides. Okay, well, <coughs> just, just to give you a quick idea of, of one of the things that we've done while we've, done, while we've been down here. Yeah, is there, a, is there a mic something here? That can Mike's here, if you're behind okay. the desk, then okay. that'll pick you up. Somewhere. Okay, so... Um, one of the one of the projects that we worked on last year was to assist. Um, I don't know if it, if you guys have heard of New Horizons. Uh, it's a space mission that uh, flew by, by Pluto in 2015. So one of our uh, projects while we were down here last year was to assist the New Horizons team. Uh, after the flyby of Pluto, they determined that they had some fuel left on the spacecraft, and so they were going to look for a second object to observe. Uh, out in the Kuiper Belt. The Kuiper Belt is that belt of material around the solar system, and it's basically the debris left over from the formation of the solar system. So they're very interested in getting a close-up look at that debris uh, to get an idea of how the solar system formed. So um, in order to do a flyby of uh, Kuiper Belt objects safely, you have to know uh, roughly its dimensions, whether it has moons, does it have rings, anything orbiting it that could damage a spacecraft going by at 35,000 miles an hour. So what they did was uh, they used SOFIA's capability in that it's uh, basically the only telescope in the world that you can fly to any location that you need to and then put at high altitude to make an observation. Um, an occultation is basically a, without boring you to death with astronomy here, an occultation is like an eclipse um, where we use a background star to get data, phot photometric <coughs> data, about um, an object between us, between the Earth and the star. So we were able to put Sophia uh, in the shadow uh, created by this object, MU69, which was the object uh, the New Horizons program wanted to look slides, at. Slides coming up if you want. Okay. And I think we have, we have a couple of slides to help explain this. But uh, so we put, we, we, we took on the task of trying to put Sophia in the shadow created by MU69 as it, as it crossed the Earth uh, last July. 
that the shadow was moving at 40,000 kilometers an hour and crossed a lat long out by Tonga uh, and we had to hit that shadow uh, flying at 500 knots within uh, three quarters of a second. So we... <laughs> so there's no, no pressure. So we were able to, um, through using uh, the navigators uh, that we have and uh, mission planners that we have, we were able to create a flight plan that essentially put us into a holding plat pattern uh, close to Tonga, uh, departing from Christchurch on a 10-hour mission, fly out, go into a holding pattern to account for um, any delays that we encountered on the way. Uh, we avoided an area. You can see our flight plan here out of Christchurch heading up uh, north. Into the holding pattern, uh, we came out of the holding pattern within about a minute of where we needed to be, and then we used something called a timing trombone, which you can see at the very top there, where we essentially fly by the point where the occultation is going to be, and um, we can turn around in that trombone, in that uh, dog leg, either early if we're running late, or later if we're running early, and we can time ourselves coming out of that knowing what the wind conditions are at the, uh, at the occultation site. So um, we, uh, we did that. We turned back inbound uh, within about five seconds, uh, plus or minus five seconds of the occultation time. And then we were able to refine the uh, speed of the airplane in order to cross the uh, occultation point, the long uh, location, and we nailed it within half a second. So the astronomers were very excited about that. Um, there is some debate about the results, um, but it's generally um, accepted now from the data that, and this was the data from the July 10th occultation flight, that uh, MU69 is probably a, a binary uh, object, um, 20 to 40 kilometers across, and that uh, Originally, they thought the data showed that it may have a moon going around it, but uh, now there's some debate about that. But uh, the bottom line is that we were able to give them uh, the data that they needed in order to be able to be confident to fly by MU69. The, uh, the flyby is on January 1, uh, 2019, and uh, you can follow that on NASA TV if you're interested live, and you'll be able to see uh, uh, just what they, uh, what they see when they get there. So... Uh, that was uh, just an example of uh, one of the missions that we flew out of Christchurch here. So, and if you have any questions, I'd be happy to, to answer. How yeah. often would that opportunity arise? Well, these kinds of things do happen from time to time, um, but I, c I couldn't tell you for that particular object how often they happen, but this is, I think, that was the third occultation we have done uh, for various projects. We did the initial Pluto flyby observation prior to the, the Pluto flyby uh, to do similar kind of work for them prior to that. We've done um, uh, the MU-69 occulta occultation and then we're going to do one here at the later on in this, in this same deployment that we're here for now in a couple of weeks. They'll be flying one out of here looking at uh, Neptune's uh, moon Triton and they're going to be looking at the atmosphere. So the other thing you can do when you're looking at an object uh, and you've got light in the background as it's coming towards you, if you can put yourself in the right place, you can actually see the light as it passes through the atmosphere of the object that you're looking at, as it grazes the surface, and you can actually do spec uh, spectroscopy and, and determine what elements are present in the atmosphere. So. Thank you. Yeah. What kind of 
Uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, it was designed as a 20-year program, um, but it got delayed, so it, it's hard to say. It's going to be subject to, um, I think the biggest determinant will be its scientific productivity. If it's really scientifically productive, they'll probably keep it around longer. Um, it depends on the budget situation in the U.S. Um, it's got pretty strong scientific support. The, the airplane's in good shape. Um, Probably the, the limiting factor on it is the engines. They're um, JT9D uh, engines, which were the very first engines they put on the 747. Pretty much nobody uses those anymore. There's only one shop in the world that still overhauls them. You can't really get new parts. Um, so a lot of our maintenance is uh, we find cracks on secondary structures in the engine. We have to pull the engine, put a new one on. They're very difficult. They're all it's a hydromechanical fuel control unit. Um, so very difficult to get them to uh, trim properly. So engines are probably the limiting factor. The rest of the airplane lasts quite a while. I think it's nominally a 20 year, 20 year program. 20 year program though. Can you not repower them? Um, yeah, the Air Force, you know, the Air Force had a laser, um, airborne laser, which was a 747-400. They offered to give us the engines for free. They had 800 hours on them. And the program said no. Um, I think if they're going to keep it around for 20 years, they're going to have to re-engine it. Um, but there's no plan to now. And it would be relatively straightforward to, to re-engine it. So you became fully operational in uh, 2014, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so you've been coming here every winter since then? Yeah, yeah we missed uh, 2014 because the airplane was in maintenance. Our first year was 2013, and this is our fifth deployment. Yes? Related question about life. It, it seems that President Trump was a little anti science. Does that pose a threat to Sophia? Um, I can't really I can't really speculate on that. Um, um, yeah, we can we can refer you to somebody who can answer that. Question. Yeah. <laughs> we have a public relations department. <laughs> Yeah. Two slides ago, you, you showed um, several different dates on there. Now, is each one of those lines, well, how often do you fly? Do you fly oh. night after night after night? Or? Yeah, no. so this, this, um, I kind of pop these slides on here, you can really get a chance to, to set them up. This blue cyan line is the Sophia's observation. Those other lines are ground-based observations from uh, Argentina. Oh, okay. So, um, this is this is kind of the the summary of all the data that was gathered uh, on this this occultation, and uh, so the the people the ground based guys they they just able to kind of determine the shape, and then Sophia had this little little notch um, that they suspect was a moon. Part of the problem with we can fly the airplane fairly precisely, but this shadow moves at like ten thousand kilometers an hour across the ground. And the position's really not, it's kind of estimated, it's not, um, not known with a lot of precision until very late in the game. So Paul was a pilot on that mission. He put the airplane within 250 meters of where, both space and time-wise, of where he was supposed to be. But they may not have had the, the where, he, where they told him to be um, perfectly correct. But, um, Mark, how many light years away did that be? 
it, it's ME69 is uh, 4 billion miles away. It's, so it's actually very close uh, in astronomical terms. Pluto is at 3 billion miles, which was originally considered the outermost planet. This is another billion miles past that. <laughs> it takes light four and a half hours uh, to get to the spacecraft and four and a half hours to come back. So everything has to be, uh, that was when it was at Pluto, three billion miles. So the, everything has to be pre-programmed uh, to be done autonomously because uh, by the time you've found out what's happened, it's too late. So they, everything has to be pre-programmed, sent up to the spacecraft um, in advance uh, so that as it flies by it, 37 or 35,000 miles an hour, it, it takes, it goes by and takes the images as it goes by and then automatically uh, starts sending the data back down. Could you just comment on what it's like to fly an aircraft with a hole in the side? <laughs> that's, that's, actually, it, you can't really tell. We have a green light in the cockpit that tells us it's open. They did a really nice, so a lot of concern about cavity resonance uh, when they designed it, but they, they put in a ramp and um, the kind of uh, trips of boundary layer, it's, um, there is no indication in the cockpit, either noise, I mean, it is a loud airplane, but uh, no noise, uh, no handling qualities difference, no performance degradation with the door open. They did, a, the engineering on that was very well done. If you've ever opened a window on your car at mm -hmm. 70 miles an hour, you know, you get one window open, you know, you set up that drumming sound at 500 miles an hour and a door the size of a two-car garage door, imagine the aerodynamics involved and they did an absolutely amazing job. So with the, with the door open, is there any limitation in the flight below the door? Um, we have a, so the airplane was qualified out to mock, or when it was in commercial service, it was a Mach 9-2 airplane. Uh, we only tested out to, um, basically our top end is 8-7, eight, eight so we don't have the higher um, Mach numbers. We have a restriction that um, it can't fly with the door open. Uh, we can't get sunlight in the, in the cavity um, because it could be a fire hazard. And so we have some uh, mission planning constraints. Um, the door can really only be open above 34,000 feet. You could probably uh, qualify it for lower, but there was no need, and they were anxious to get the thing in service, so we didn't spend uh, a lot of time um, expanding that envelope. Yes? Um, you guys struck me as smarter than the average pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what. I tell you what. When you see the crew list and you're the only non-PhD on board, you feel you're the dumbest person. I'm the, I'm the dumbest person on the airplane. I, I was wondering if you could um, tell us your backgrounds and how you got to become NASA research pilots. Um, I was an Air Force pilot in the U.S. Air Force, and uh, I f had one assignment flying um, tankers. I went to test pilot school. And then basically uh, was a test pilot for the Air Force. I got out in 2000, just um, was with American Airlines for a couple years, and then uh, got furloughed, ended up coming back into the Air Force as a civilian. And then uh, I was, did that for eight years and then transferred to NASA. I'm actually kind of unusual. I'm a civilian, about the only one uh, uh, at NASA as a pilot that is. I came up as, a, as an airline pilot, a corporate pilot, flight instructor, and, um, went to uh, National Test Pilot School, fixed wing course, a short course there, and was able to come through the flight test ranks through smaller organizations, and I ended up with uh, Boeing as a test pilot, and uh, just happened that NASA were looking for large airplane test pilots uh, to fly, 
because of the, pro the programs like this. Um, so that, that's how I ended up with NASA. But, uh, all the NASA pilots have uh, either engineering or science uh, degrees. And they're, they're AST. They're also they're referred to as AST uh, research pilots, aeronautical engineers. So the whole each of us carry that title and, and have that kind of a training. Yeah, um, actually, I think our um, job description is aerospace engineer. Yeah, at first is aerospace engineer, then research pilot. And Dave is also a research test pilot. Uh, that is indicative of the fact that um, there are two sides to what we do uh, as research pilots at NASA. One is sensor platform aircraft, which is, this is a prime example of that, where we use an airplane to fly an instrument, uh, either looking up into space or maybe down on the ground, um, looking at... Uh, geophysics and stuff like that. That's a sensor platform type operation. The other side of what we do uh, is to support the space program, but also um, aerodynamic research. Uh, we do a lot of um, uh, flight testing at Edwards, uh, looking at uh, supersonics, uh, acoustics, um, biofuels, all kinds of different uh, elements, but it's uh, uh, aerodynamics is a big one at, uh, at Armstrong where we work. And so we have a number of test pilots that will do uh, aerodynamic type research as well. So, so that's what you do between the seasons? Yeah, so the research pilots like Dave and I will fly on multiple programs, not just SOFIA. So while most of the people that work on SOFIA will work just on the SOFIA program, the scientists and engineers, um, telescope operators and that, uh, the pilots uh, jump from mission to mission and project to project as needed. So uh, you know, Dave, for example, works on the DC-8 Flies the Gulfstream, Sophia. Um, and I, I fly the uh, I fly Sophia. I fly um, synthetic aperture radar work on the Gulfstream aircraft. Um, I've done some of the acoustic research work in the Gulfstream, and uh, get to do some some backseat stuff in the, in the fighters as well. So it, it, uh, it's very interesting, very interesting work. One day you can be flying a 747, the next day you're you're flying in an F-15. It's uh, as far as pilots are concerned, it's a Wonderful way to make a living. Perhaps I should fly the tire off. <laughs> <laughs> we're eyeballing We'd that one to. hanging up in the museum. We have something called the TG14, which is a little motor glider, mm. which we use. Uh, fly it along underneath the supersonic fighters when we're doing sonic boom mm. research. Uh, we'll lay a sonic boom down over an acoustic array on the ground and then fly the little TG14 motor glider underneath it. With the engine shut off. down the engine right before we're going to do the test point. And as we lay the sonic boom, they can measure it on the ground, but they can also measure it at 10,000 feet uh, with a, from a glider uh, with, a, with acoustic uh, equipment on board and see the difference between 10,000 feet in the ground and therefore make interpretations with respect to what effect the atmosphere is having on the sonic boom. So we're flying low and slow as well. <laughs> Do each of you have a favorite? My favorite's the one, the one I'm flying at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I, I like the DC-8. It's a, it's a, I think it was my first air flight when I was a little little kid. I think I, uh, that was the first air, airliner I was in. It's just a, a super rugged airplane. We take it low level over Antarctica for 10 hours at a shot. You don't really want to do that with a two-engine airplane if you can avoid it. My favorite's, I think my favorite's Sophia. There's something about the 747. It's an absolutely magnificent airplane. And uh, it, uh, it's funny, 1969, I was a, 
I was a four-year-old kid. I got my first airplane right in the UK, in the and it's a very small airplane. And when I got out of this plane, my eyes were about this big, and the, and the pilot, uh, the instructor guy, gave me a postcard uh, and said, "Here's son, this is the future." And it was a artist's rendition of what the 747 was going to be. It was on the drawing boards in '69 and about to fly. And uh, so I, I kind of like that that, that loop. That I closed when I when I flew the 747. It's a, it's a magnificent airplane. Yeah, really, it has no um, no bad handling qualities. The older airplanes, like the DC-8 707, had you know very heavy control forces. They had uh, mock um, pitch over tendencies. Sometimes uh, the 707 had really bad Dutch roll. The 747 is pretty much not really a fault fault to it. Back in, in the 1980s, I flew from Auckland to London in 23 hours 15 in a 747 SP, had America that dimension. Wow, could have been this airplane. Uh, I was about 20 minutes on the ground, I think. I think we may have changed one SP to another. It was a very brief stop in LA. Yes. Great, great airplane. Very long legs, the SP. Our, ours doesn't get quite as long a legs because our um, fuel fraction is limited because we've got that 40 or a 17 ton telescope. So the empty weight's actually <coughs> fairly heavy. So we get about, I think we probably do about 11, 12 hours is the maximum. We can't get the, the range that a, uh, a commercial aircraft did that was lighter. You can imagine the engineering jump too, putting a 17 ton weight in the back of the, of the airplane. The pilots amongst you will know what that means in terms of CG, and we ended up having to uh, bolt steel plate under the forward section of the airplane uh, in quite large amounts to, to balance it out, and they put all the computers for the telescope, and there's racks and racks of computers up front uh, to, to balance it out. Yeah. I do have some, I've got some stickers and patches and stuff if anybody's interested, so I'll leave Put some up here. Any other any other questions? Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Uh, been, this is my fifth trip to uh, Christchurch, and I come to this museum every time. It's uh, I really think it's a extraordinary resource you guys have. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.